Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. Good morning. I think it's no surprise to anyone that we're back in Ephesians this morning. <laughs> we're, still, we're still there. And uh, for those of you who had the chance to listen to the podcast from last week, if any of you went back and listened to it, you'll know that with the new audio setup that we have, we have a different microphone that we're using and it picks up everything in the room. So I'm going to tell you the same thing that an officer might tell you if you're being arrested. Everything you say can and will be used against you by the audience on the podcast. So, um, this morning we're in Ephesians chapter 3 again. Uh, we're going to be looking at, I called it God's infinite riches. And just to recap, for, for those of us who haven't been with us this whole time, we've been working through the book of Ephesians slowly. We're taking time to read this letter with a fresh perspective. And today, of course, we'll be building on what we talked about last week. And I will, I will bring up what we talked about last week for those that weren't here last week. Um, but, but last week, the thing that we focused on was the gospel as this great story of God's unifying plan. So God's plan, as we have seen throughout the book of Ephesians, primarily in chapter 1, is to unite all things to him through Christ. That is, that is God's overarching plan that was revealed. And the sub-part of that plan that, that he talks about in chapter 3 is how he's uniting humanity. Jews and Gentiles now are no longer divided. We are part of one body, one church, one family. And that message was so controversial, but so important, and Paul, as he says in chapter 3, verse 1, he was in prison for this gospel. He was accused of taking an Ephesian Gentile, of all people, into the temple. And that's why they caused up that commotion in Acts 21. That led to him being in prison for years, and ultimately the preaching of this gospel of unification led to his death. And for Paul, that was worth it. It was worth it to be in prison for this gospel. It was worth it to die for this gospel. That's how important this was. So um, that is what we talked about a little bit last week. Before we tackle our question for today, I want to talk about the four themes we've been working through. The first one is that Ephesians is a community-oriented book. It's a community-oriented letter. It was written as a letter to um, a community that lived 2,000 years ago that thought about things very differently than we do in the modern West. And so every you in this book is plural. And so we've been reading it, y'all. And I know I grew up in the South. Uh, I knew I grew up in the South. And so that's comfortable for me. But this was actually something that Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, he grew up in Portland. So I, I trust you, this is not Southern bias that's leading me to read every you as y'all. Um, and I will tell you this as a little spoiler for today. I'm going to break this rule a little bit today in our conclusion. So we are going to get a little individualistic today. The second theme that we've been seeing is uh, new creation and new order of things in Jesus. So this idea of apocalypse, of revelation, of seeing the truth clearly for the first time, of encountering Jesus in a powerful way that transforms our lives. Uh, so that's the second thing we've been looking at. The third one is unity in Christ, which is the focus of this passage. And of course, uh, it's being focused on Jew and Gentile. That was their issue. Their issue is Jew and Gentile. Our issue is not really Jew and Gentile anymore, though. And so we think about unity a little bit differently. 
But the overarching unity of, between heaven and earth is still important for us today. And then finally, division and battle with the powers of the world. Wherever we see division, wherever we see, um, that's where we see the powers of the world at work. So our question for today is, what is the purpose of the secret that God hid? What is the purpose for all of this? And so we can begin by getting into Ephesians chapter 3. And I'm going to read the whole passage here, last week's section and this week's section, because it's really one big thought, even though we've been, like I said, going slowly and we split into two weeks. Um, so Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of y'all Gentiles, assuming that y'all have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for y'all, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, by an apocalypse. As I have written briefly, when y'all read this, y'all can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask y'all not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for y'all, which is your glory. So just to recap a, li a little bit of the, the nerdy Greek grammar from last week we talked about, uh, Paul begins a train of thought in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner, and then he grammatically it leads into the prayer in verse 14. So this whole section here from basically verses 2 to 13, it's all sort of an aside that he's making. He's digging deeper into why he's a prisoner. He's, he's talking about this gospel in a little bit more detail from what he had just talked about at the end of chapter 2, which is that God has gotten rid of the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles and that everyone is now part of one church. So... Let's, let's jump into verse 7. This is the beginning section of our uh, section for this morning. So in verse 7 it says, Of this gospel, this gospel of Jews and Gentiles being fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise together, uh, this message of complete unification in Christ. Verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. So the first word we see that's important for us to identify is the word gospel. When we see the word gospel in the Bible, it's important to figure out there is a sort of overarching idea of what the gospel is, but then there's what is the gospel specifically talking about in this context, what's being communicated here by the word gospel. And so I've already given you the warning about the microphone. Everyone can hear what you're about to, to say, how you're going to respond. Does anyone want to give their definition of the gospel? I'm going to open it up. Does anyone want to give their definition of the gospel? Just briefly. Either. Yep. Melody. Good news. Good news. Yep. That's what it means. Yeah. What about here in this context? Does anyone want to talk a little bit about what the gospel is? 
Yeah. That um, that God through Christ brought together that which had been separated, yeah. man from Him and men from one another. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So that's yeah, very succinctly done, Mom. Very good. Uh, <laughs> I did not coach her beforehand, by the way. So. <laughs> No impropriety there. <laughs> so the gospel, generally speaking, is God God saw Adam and Eve. He asked them to do some things for him. They didn't live up to that standard. And then he had that, that relationship was broken. And for years and years and years and years, eons, that was broken with humanity. And so God sent his son, Jesus. Jesus repaired that breach between, as mom said, us and God. And then because of that, he can now spread that unity amongst all humanity. And how that plays out in, a, in another context, we can think about it that way. We can also think about it from the context of the kingdom of God. God wants to reign over all of his creation. He wants his creation to obey him perfectly. And so in the future, he is set, said to a king who's going to come back and establish a kingdom that will reign forever. And so Jesus is, is important both because he is the unifying factor and because he is the king above all of those all of, of, of all of God's creation. So, here in Ephesians 3, Paul's highlighting that this gospel, this good news, is not no longer, it's been a Jewish thing for thousands of years. Ever since he calls you know, Abraham and he sets up the covenant with Moses, you know, thousands of years after that, we're talking about now it's no longer for just Jews, he's bringing in the Gentiles as well. And that's what was controversial for them in the first century. So how did Paul gain this responsibility? You know, we think about um, these are life. This is a life-changing message. This is a completely new thing that no one had thought about quite this way. They knew the Gentiles would be blessed, but they didn't know that they would be full heirs. Um, so why did Paul get this responsibility? Paul received this ministry through God's grace. That's what he says here in verse seven. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. So God gave Paul a gift of grace, and this gift is described in the context throughout this whole chapter 3, what we call chapter 3, as something that Paul needs to steward and manage. He receives this gift, and he's supposed to steward what God's given him. He's supposed to take advantage of what God has given him and not you know, set it aside and not ignore it and not uh, use it improperly. Um, it also is something that is described as uh, something that led him to serve. It led him to uh, minister, which means uh, to, to serve and to not lord over someone, but to dedicate their lives to supporting other people. Um, it is described as something that was revealed to him through revelation or an apocalypse. And we've been talking about that life-changing encounter that he had with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And it's also described as some, something formerly hidden to all and now revealed to all. So we're going to work through how that happened. Uh, it says that he was, it was revealed to him by revelation. Then he talks about the holy apostles and prophets in verse 5. And then eventually the church figures it out. And then by verse 10, we're talking about a whole different group of beings that find out about this. But we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. So there's an expansion. This message goes out. It goes out. It's heralded forth. So let's keep reading here, verse 8. To me, to Paul, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ 
and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's an interesting thing. So in verse 8, Paul begins with a statement of humility. And uh, you know, he does this multiple times where he, he recognizes how he used to abuse the church. He was formerly an opponent of the church. He used to reach in and grab people out of Christian meetings and take them to be uh, prisoners. And some of them were executed. He was there when Stephen was stoned, most notably. Um, and so Paul realizes that he, there's nothing that he did to deserve this meeting with Jesus on the road to Damascus. There's nothing that he did to deserve this apocalypse, this transformation that happened when he encountered Jesus. There's nothing that he uh, deserved. There's no reason that he deserved this ministry that he was given to preach these things, to teach these things, to serve the way that he served. And um, I think what's interesting is like I never thought about like, why is he saying this here? I get why he's saying it generally, but why is he saying it here? And Lynn Kohick, our friend Lynn Kohick, who wrote the New International Commentary on the New Testament, she had some insight on that question that I thought was really helpful. So I'm going to read from her commentary here. She says, in Paul's day, and we've talked about, we talked about this about a month ago. In Paul's day, gift and grace were linked semantically and in social conventions. The recipient of a gift was expected to be worthy of it. One's worth was determined by one's wealth, social standing, or ethnic background. A suitable recipient would use the gift wisely, thus demonstrating the wisdom and generosity of the gift giver. Paul's readers would expect that God gave this gift to Paul because he, has in some, he was, was in some way worthy or would become worthy. Paul turns such expectations upside down and inside out as he highlights his own unworthiness of this gift and emphasizes God's power to make his gift effective in Paul's ministry. She continues, what is true of Paul is true of all believers. Their worth, or I'll say our worth, is not based on the standards of this world, wealth, social position, cultural influence, but according to the membership in God's family that they now enjoy through Christ. There is no obvious reason why God should include the Gentiles in his family, why they should be co-heirs and sharers in this promise. Christ's redemption of Gentiles as Gentiles create a new family, together with Jewish believers sharing God's inheritance, end quote. I thought, I thought this was a really important thing to, for her to point out. We've been talking about uh, boasting. We've been talking about uh, this idea of gift and grace. So there's all these ideas floating around. And what, what she's saying is Paul is pointing out, again, his specific unworthiness to receive God's grace, his specific unworthiness in receiving this gift of being a minister to the church. So Paul is talking about Receiving this gift, he emphasizes his own lack of, lack of worthiness, just as we lack worthiness in receiving this amazing gift that God's given us through Christ. So one of the reasons that God gave this to Paul was for him to preach. This first uh, phrase here uh, in, verse, in the middle of verse 8 says, to preach. Whenever we see to preach, and then in verse 9 it says to bring, these are purposes. These are purpose statements for what Paul is saying. So the first purpose, the first reason that God gave Paul this gift of grace was for him to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable, that's what ESV says, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now I'm going to present to you and submit to you that this is mystery language. 
This idea of unsearchable riches is mystery language. And of course, in the next verse, he explicitly uses the word mystery. So, and of course, he used it in verse 6 as well, and in verse 3. So he's using mystery language throughout all this. Um, and we talked about this a lot last week, but I wanted to recap a little bit about what we said last week about the mystery. Uh, the word mystery first appears in Ephesians chapter 1 in this book. Not, not in the Bible, but in this book, it first appears in Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 9. And in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 9, the mystery that's being revealed is that God's plan is to unite everything to him through Jesus our Lord. So when we think about mystery, sometimes we think about mystery as like an Agatha Christie novel or, uh, you know, Sherlock Holmes or something. There's, there's a murder that needs to be solved and we've got to collect clues and solve the mystery. But that's not what the word mystery means in the Bible. Um, the word mystery in the Bible is a secret that's been revealed by God. We talked about last week how Tim Mackey of the Bible Project uses the phrase open secret to translate this word mystery. And so the mystery that Paul's talking about in chapter 3 is a subset of the greatest mystery that he revealed in Ephesians chapter 1. The, great, the greatest mystery, the overarching mystery, or the open secret that was revealed in chapter 1 is that God's going to unite everything. Spiritual things, earthly things, the animals, everything. All, all creation is going to be united to God through Christ. Wow. So now, this subset that he's talking about in Ephesians 3 is Jews and Gentiles. Humanity is going to be united. So all these are important things. I'm not trying to say that one's more important or less important than the other. I'm just saying <laughs> there's an overarching idea of unification. And that is what God is moving toward. So... I like this phrase, unsearchable riches, and I came across some really helpful notes on this because unsearchable, I don't think, captures the fullness of what this word means. And so I'm going to read it to you another commentary. This one is Arthur Patzia in the Understanding the Bible commentary. The, the translation, unsearchable riches, captures beautifully the idea behind the Greek word. Stott lists 10 different English equivalents that he has discovered in various <coughs> translations and commentaries, all attempting to define the word without confining its meaning. Basically, it means not to be tracked out, beyond comprehension, or inscrutable. Paul expresses this idea when he writes to the Romans, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. The same thoughts occur in Job 5.9 and 9.10 with respect to God's creation and providence. They lie beyond human comprehension and defy description. So then Patzia gives an analogy that I thought was really helpful. A modern analogy may be found in the current attempt to conquer the cosmos. The present universe, as it is known, is accessible and trackable. But as one reaches farther and farther into space, one discovers that there are many more universes and galaxies to explore, literally an infinity to, in space. And so it is in the riches in Christ. They are unsearchable to the extent that the moment one discovers some of them, a new door is open to God's treasury, which in turn leads to a supply of riches that is endless and even beyond comprehension. These unsearchable riches are none other than Christ himself, end quote. So it's, uh, Tim Mackey, I think, uses the example of a cave where you, you get into the first chamber of the cave <coughs> And you have a revelation of that chamber of the cave. You, you shine the light around the cave. And as you're searching through the cave, you think, I've discovered all the cave. And then you find that there's another branch. 
And it takes you deeper into the cave, right? And you find another chamber. Oh, then you find two chambers beyond that, right? And then you keep going, it keeps splitting and you keep finding more and more cave. It's that, that's the kind of unsearchable riches it's talking about here. It's talking about an infinite amount of riches. Infinite riches is what it's talking about. So this is what we've been calling richness language in Ephesians. Um, so there's so much more to God's grace. Uh, his grace is beyond comp comparison. It's unlimited. It's, in, it's incomprehensible. So this is, this is richness language that's being used. Um, another commentary I read gave the picture of a reservoir so deep that no one can see the bottom. You can see sort of some of the stuff on the top, but you cannot see all the way to the bottom. So the conclusion that we have to reach when we read this, unsearchable, like I said, it, it might be the best word if you have to pick one word. <laughs> but okay. what it means is that there's no limit to God's riches. There's no limit to the riches that we have in Christ. Verse 9 begins with the phrase, to bring to light. Uh, this, is, again, is a purpose statement. It's the second purpose of God giving the grace to Paul. And this phrase echoes back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul prayed for the Ephesians to have hearts that are enlightened. And again, we get that picture of uh, we receive an apocalypse. We receive a revelation of Christ. We have this life-changing encounter with Jesus whether that's in the Bible, whether that's with someone that you love and has shared the gospel with you, however it happens, whether it's personally Jesus himself like it was for Paul, however that happens, we have an initial revelation. But then as our lives go on, we, we don't stop there, right? We continue learning. We can continue in our relationship with God and with Christ. And as we do that, we continue to be enlightened. And what Paul is saying here is that part of continuing to be enlightened is hearing this message, hearing this specific message of God's plan to unify the Jews and the Gentiles together. So Paul is revealing, he's bringing to light this plan that was hidden by God. So now we're getting to the purpose, so that, verse 10 begins with, through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this this is a verse, honestly, I've skipped over my entire life, never really thought about a lot until we started thinking about it here. <coughs> and so Paul is talking about a couple things here. And I want to first talk about this manifold wisdom before we get to the real weird part at the end of the verse. <laughs> so the word manifold means richly diverse, many colored, diversified, or many sided. So again, this is richness language that's being used here. Uh, the great amount and very d diversity of God's wisdom that he's talking about here. So now, the moment you've all been waiting for, who are these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? Um, now, if we didn't have the additional language, if it just said rulers and authorities and didn't have in the heavenly places, then we might, we would be left with more general words for what we've been calling the powers and just as a, as a reminder, the powers are anything from uh, like a ruler. It could be like a president or a Caesar. It could be like a local ruler, like a governor. Or it could be someone like a sheriff or a clerk, even in local government. Those are all powers at different levels on, on one scheme. They can also be things like laws, uh, traffic laws that compel us to slow down or speed up. Unless you're Jerry Weller, they don't really do much to Jerry, as we, as we found out in this series. Uh, 
they can be like traffic laws or they can be uh, you know, tax laws or whatever. Things that change our behavior. Things that have control over human behavior. These are all things that are considered powers. And what we've also talked about is that there are personalities that are powers. And we think when a lot of us, especially those of us that came from charismatic backgrounds, when we think about the powers, we think about angels and demons. That's basically our bucket. Even though I think the powers are much bigger than that, as we've seen in, in Ephesians and throughout Paul's writings. Um, but here, interestingly enough, when he says rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, because he uses the phrase in the heavenly places, it leads us to exactly where the charismatics would want us to go. This is talking about angels and demons. Rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So we're talking about these angels and these demons. And we know that these authorities and rulers in heavenly places are, have been and continue to observe human behavior and God's interaction with humanity throughout time. <coughs> throughout time. And so what's fascinating about what Paul is saying here is he's saying that this amazing gospel message that he's received, that God's plan is to unite everything, all the spiritual things, all the earthly things, the animals, humanity, uh, the plants, everything, all of creation is being unified to God through Christ. This, even the subset of this humanity being combined together, this unification that the church is now experiencing, that that is a revelation, that is an apocalypse for these angels and demons. They are seeing the church come together in a way that's never been seen before. They're seeing humanity come together through God's power, through his grace, through his wisdom. They're seeing this happen in front of them. They're watching this movie of humanity combining together in ways that's never happened since the fall of Adam and Eve. And they're watching this in 4K from, from heaven, from this other reality. Can you imagine the angels for a second? Let's consider the angels. These are the beings who helped administer God's plan through the ages. They're the ones who showed up and helped Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're the ones who talked to Moses. They're the ones who did all these things. They went to talk to Mary. And the angels did not know the fullness of what God's plan for the Gentiles was. And so the full plan wasn't revealed to them. And they're watching with surprise, but happy surprise, what God is now doing to and through humanity. Now think about the demons for a second. On the opposite end, right? They've been fighting against. They've been creating division throughout humanity's history. They're the ones who, you know, cause wars. They're the ones who cause idolatry and all these things that separate us from one another. They're the ones who build up these structures like sexism and racism that divide humanity. And now you're seeing a group of people coming together through Christ where these divisions now mean nothing. Jew-Gentile means nothing. Male-female means nothing. Not that we don't acknowledge and appreciate and, and love those differences, but that they don't, we don't allow them to divide us anymore. And for the demons who've built structures and who've built laws and who have been working throughout, through humanity through all these things to divide us, seeing that this, this unity is coming and that all these divisions are being done away with, can you imagine the horror? <laughs> can you imagine the shock, the pain that demons would feel watching this take place? 
So when I talk about fighting the powers, that's one way we fight the powers. We fight the powers by identifying the powers and the division that they try to incite. And we choose to live in the unity that God's given to us. That's how we fight the powers. So this is a wild verse here that God's purpose in hiding all these things was so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, revealed to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. They can now watch this happen. It's a wild thing. Let's read verse 11 and 12. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So the phrase eternal purpose here is also can be translated the purpose of the ages. So the purpose of the ages, again, is to unite all things to God in Christ. And now the church is God's wisdom on display to all. And so that's the eternal purpose he's talking about in verse 11. And verse 12 highlights for us a personal benefit of the gospel, the good news of grace and reconciliation in Jesus. We now have boldness and access with confidence to God through our faith in Christ. So... This is where we need a little personal for a minute. I know we've been talking about community-oriented this whole time, but I want there is a definitely a personal thing going on here. Um, this is what Clint Arnold had to say in the Zondervan Illustrated Biblical Backgrounds Commentary on this phrase, a boldness and access with confidence. He says, quote, The sentence can be more literally translated, In him we have the freedom or boldness and access and confidence. The freedom... Boldness, freedom slash boldness that Paul speaks of here was common in Greek literature for describing the kind of communication that would occur among close friends. One may address a friend openly, frankly, and confidently. Access is now repeated from 2.18. Believers not only have the right to approach God, but they can approach him with candidness and freedom, much as one would address a close friend. End quote. This is life-changing good news. God has been pursuing humanity since Adam and Eve. He had a personal relationship with Adam and Eve, and he's finally achieved his mission. He wants you to come to him like a close friend. The evil powers can no longer keep you separated from God. The Jews, well-meaning as they were, cannot keep you out of the temple and out of his presence anymore. You have boldness and access with confidence now. Close with verse 13. So I ask y'all not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for y'all, which is your glory. Now this verse calls back to verse 1 where he talks about his imprisonment. And again, we talked about how Paul was in prison on behalf of this controversial gospel of including the Gentiles. And Paul does not want his initial audience, these Ephesian, mostly Gentile believers, to be upset with the fact that Paul is in prison on their behalf. Instead, he wants them to glory. And there are debates as to what this means. We don't have time to get into the ins and outs of all the different debates on what this means. But my best shot at this is that Paul viewed everything from an upside-down kingdom perspective. So in the real world, in the normal world, having a leader or a prophet in prison would be seen as a bad thing. Something not to be proud of. But we serve a Lord who was crucified and who suffered and who was given the most shameful death you could be given in that time. And so our view of power has to be upside down. And so the idea of a leader in prison suffering for the best news ever is actually for Paul something to glory in. 
It's a sign that he's doing things right. Oh, the powers want to imprison me? That means I'm doing something right. That's what Paul is saying. So what does this mean for our lives? We've been talking about the end of each of these sermons, the four layers of interpretation. This is just the idea that this is a letter that was written 2,000 years ago to a people group that lived halfway across the world. We can't just pick up their mail from 2,000 years ago and expect to uh, immediately apply it to our lives without any thought at all. We have to think about how they would have understood it, how they would have applied it, and then how we can understand it and apply it. We've already talked about what the text meant to them. So how would they have applied it? Just like we saw last week, they would have been thankful for this recounting of the gospel that, that Paul shared with them at the end of Ephesians chapter 2. They would have been blessed to find out that they were part of God's plan for a new humanity, one new body, one new church, one new plant, one new temple, one new family. And in recognizing this plan of God, they would have set aside those differences we talked about last week to be unified. And this week we've seen additionally that they would have been humbled, of course, by the massive riches contained in Christ. The scale of the plan of God. So what does this mean to us? Well, I think we similarly are amazed to see the good news of the gospel of Christ. We reflected on unity a lot last week. And that is, I think, the subject of this whole passage. But today, what I want us to reflect on is a subtle but important contrast that we find in this section. We talked about uh, in verse 8 and in verse, uh, I think it's verse eight, yeah, verse 8, and in other sections here in verse 10, this idea of manifold, uh, we've seen the richness language that Paul uses here in this passage. And in verse 10, we found out that these infinite riches that God has, this manifold wisdom that's on display, is uh, so big, this plan is so big, what's happening that's unfolding is so big that the heavenly court, both the good and the bad, are watching this. They're watching this unity that God has placed in the church, and they're learning about the wisdom of God. So we're talking about a God of big proportions, big plans, big riches. All those things are huge, infinite. But then in verse 12, we find that the God of cosmic power, the God of massive proportions, the God of hidden plans, the God of foresight through the ages, is a God who wants us to speak with him as if we're close friends. He's a God who cares about us individually. So again, I'm not trying to break us out of the mold of reading this collectively. <laughs> I'm not trying to do that. But because the majority of the book deserves that kind of treatment. But... This small section here in verse 12 reminds us of the personal care and concern that God has in our individual lives. This is a God that we can trust. This is a God that we can draw close to because he cares for us more deeply than we could ever understand. And he wants a relationship with us. So that's what I want us to reflect on this week is he's a God of big plans. He's a God of big wisdom. He's a God of big power. He's a God of big grace. And he's a God that wants us. He wants us to talk to him like close friends. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful this morning for your manifold wisdom, for the unsearchable riches in Christ, for the things that you have laid out for us in Ephesians through Paul. We're so thankful that we have the ability to learn from this, to see your grace and your goodness on even deeper levels. Father, we're thankful that we can approach you like 
a friend, that we can speak openly and boldly, that we have that access to you. We're thankful that your son made a way for that to happen. Father, give us grace. Give us uh, your power. Give us your spirit. Help us to show other people this life-changing message so that they too can have an apocalypse. They too can encounter your son Jesus in a new way and see the goodness and graciousness of your plan and your purposes and for the relationship that you desire to have with them. Father, we, we pray for unity in the Christian church generally and unity among humanity globally. And we know that that won't happen until your kingdom comes. But God, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done. We thank you for your son Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslu.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.